part five of the Intro to Investing series, where I'll be talking about where to invest cash and different alternative investments in this, the 61st episode of the Retirement Planning Education Podcast. Welcome to the Retirement Planning Education Podcast, where you can learn all about IRAs and Roth IRAs, employer retirement plans, taxes, Social Security, Medicare, Portfolio Withdrawal Strategies, Annuities, Estate Planning, and much more. And now here's your host, Andy Panko. OBKB, welcome back everyone. Thank you as always for listening. Today is part five of this multi-part Intro to Investing series. Uh, today I'm going to be talking about different ways in which you can invest cash or where to keep cash. And then I'll talk about various different, what I'll call alternative investments. So the last few episodes we talked about what, what what we can label traditional investments, stocks, bonds, mutual funds and exchange traded funds, now as other uh, things in which you can invest. And this will, this won't be a comprehensive list. It'll be sort of the uh, the usual suspects of alternative investments. And then finally, next week I will wrap with uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna leave it at six parts to this intro to investing series. Next week, part six will be uh, a capstone, if you will pulling together general portfolio management considerations, how to think about putting together a portfolio, what to invest in, how much in each, what to consider, et cetera, to, to hopefully tie this all together to give you something to walk away with. That's not just uh, you know a list of different investment types, but actual, uh, actually some, uh, some info about how to try to do something with the knowledge. So um, excuse me, my, my voice is really beat up. I've had a, a doozy of a cold the last week. I'm, I'm finally... Uh, getting towards the other end of it, but my uh, my throat, <clears throat> my voice is quite quite scratchy, quite hoarse. So um, apologies if I don't sound that great. I'll try to keep this not too long, so I'm not talking too much here. But y- you know me, I have a tendency to kind of riff on here. So let let's get into it. Uh, I want to start talking about cash. Cash is an asset class, just like stocks are an asset class, bonds are an asset class. Uh, cash is its own asset class. Now we all know physical cash, you know, tangible bills you have in your wallet or whatever, or you have in a, in a coffee can or underneath your mattress, that's cash. But in reality, most people don't, other than normal day-to-day spending cash, you don't really keep cash there. If you have hundreds of thousands of dollars, you're not, well, hopefully you're not keeping it in a, you know, under your pillow or something, because then it's at risk of burning down or getting stolen, uh, you know, physically stolen. So let, let's talk about if you decide you you, you want to have a certain amount of cash, whether it's for down payment for a house or, you know, next one or two years of uh, expense needs in retirement, whatever it is you want, you need cash. What do you do with it? So, yes, one option is physically keep it somewhere. Again, coffee can under your pillow, under your mattress, uh, in, in a little safe in the garage or whatever. But there, there's risks with that and that they're not earning any interest. They are uh, subject. You know, they're at risk of getting physically stolen. They're at risk of burning, getting physically damaged. So not ideal to keep lots of cash in physical form, uh, unless maybe it's at like a safe or something in a, in a bank, then you're not getting interest, but still at least it's physically safe. Um, but anyway, so a- outside of that, you know, in, in reality, most people keep most of their cash in some sort of electronic means, typically a bank account. You go to a bank, you open up a checking account, a savings account. Uh, I assume you all know what those are, so I won't get into them too much. Or um, a, a CD, which stands for Certificate of Deposit. This is a bank product. It's insured by FDIC, you know, Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation uh, insurance limits, just the same as checking and savings accounts are. Um, you you put money in. You, there's some sort of commitment period: nine months, twelve months, eighteen months, two years, three years, whatever. You you agree to a contract length. In return, the bank says we we guarantee to pay you X percent interest over 
this uh, this contract length. So I'm just making this numbers up. I didn't check, but you know, a, a two year CD, maybe you can get like 4% interest currently, give or take. I'm not really sure. So long as you keep the money in there for the full two years, you will get back everything you put in plus the 4% per year interest in this case. Uh, if you if you break it early, you can. There's almost always going to be some sort of early termination penalty. Uh, some depend often you don't get penalized more than just having to give up some of your interest, but there are some CDs that I've, I've come across where they do actually eat into your principal, uh, you know, in, in, in return for offering you a really high looking interest rate. If you break this thing early, they will, uh, not only take back some or all of your interest, but may dip into the principal you paid. Those aren't common, uh, in my experience, but, but they do exist. So just pay attention to that. Anytime you buy a CD, be fully aware. What are the, uh, ways in which you can get out what's a penalty to, to get out so like if you if you have cash you're gonna you expect you need to spend in the next one or two months it's probably not a good idea to buy a cd that's one year two year three years you know in this case maybe just keep it in a savings account where you can have access to it anytime with no penalty or something like that there's also something called uh, money market funds these are mutual funds if you recall from last week's episode what a mutual fund is but uh the the label money market means the investment purpose of the fund is to be cash like uh it invests in high quality short-term lowish risk things meant to generate some non-zero interest you know a little bit of interest with with negligible if any risk of principal loss now i say negligible because in theory it is possible for money markets to to lose uh lose money you know to to get out less than you put in super rare it's called breaking the buck when it happens money markets are always priced at one dollar per share so in theory the price never goes up or goes down what happens is you, you buy today for one dollar per share you get interest and you paid out that interest and that's it you the, the thing is still costs uh, one dollar per share there was one during the lehman bankruptcy i forget the name of it but it, it broke the buck it dropped below one dollar per share because that money market invested in some some short-term uh, debt obligations from lehman brothers and those things got skunked so, but anyway, outside of that, generally speaking, money market is, uh, it's not as safe as true cash because there is in theory risk of principal loss, but in reality, it's not common. You will get some amount of interest um, and, uh, you know, you, you can access it any day. So those are things you'd buy inside a brokerage account or something, just like you'd buy a normal money market. Uh, I'm sorry, a normal mutual fund inside a brokerage account. So that's another option. And one final option I'll touch on for cash is treasury bills. I talked about these briefly in the bond episode a couple episodes back. Um, these are direct obligations of the U.S. Treasury that, that that mature, that last up to one year. They don't pay any ongoing coupon payments along the way. Simply, you buy them at a discount. You know, the, the thing matures at $1,000 per bill. You buy it for something less than $1,000. You hold it till it matures, you will get back exactly $1,000. If you sell them prematurely, which you can, you may not get exactly what you paid or or more. It all depends how interest rates move. But So there is some risk in Treasury bills. They're not completely risk-free by any means. But if you do hold them until maturity or at least close to it, you will get back some, uh, you know, some non-zero amount of interest. So this is um, also commonly viewed as a, as a cash-like thing. So that's <clears throat> that's uh, the few ways in which you can uh, invest cash or do something with cash. Hope you found that helpful. Let's now move on to uh, alternative investments. So things other than stocks or bonds, whereas cash is, is viewed to be sort of, I want to say riskless, but low risk. You know, cash is cash is cash. Now, for the portion of your portfolio that's not cash, it's actually invested, what to do with it. As we talked about previous episodes, you got stocks, you got bonds, you got mutual funds. Now it's kind of everything else. 
Uh, and, and as always, this is not a recommendation of what you should or shouldn't buy or invest in. This is just simply me summarizing some options um, for you to do with as you please, to research, to see if you think it makes sense for you. But this is not a recommendation to buy, to sell, to hold, to do anything of, of, of the sort. So I'm going to generically just call everything else I'm talking about this episode as a quote unquote alternative investment. Now, alternative to what? Alternative, and there's no formal definition, but basically within the industry, this means the traditional investments are things like stocks and bonds and mutual funds or ETFs that invest in stocks or bonds. Alternatives simply kind of mean anything else that, that's not just the stocks or the bonds or things that invest in those. So that that's super high level. They also, not always, but they, they often or sometimes have lower liquidity. Liquidity is the ability to quickly and easily uh, trade, to buy or sell or to get out of an investment quickly and at negligible um, you know, cost or bid-ask spread. Remember that term, bid-ask spread I talked about in the last few episodes. Um, stocks, for example, super liquid, you know, especially large, large blue chip name stocks like Microsoft or IBM or Apple or whatever. You can sell them within seconds, uh, you know, in a brokerage account, and the price is going to be fairly stable in terms of not large bid ask spread. You can get your money, uh, depending on the broker, same day or you know, two two days later. <clears throat> so very liquid, very easy to trade. Alternative investments, not necessarily, and, and you'll see as we go through this list here. It may also be hard to determine the underlying value of alternative investments with stocks and bonds. Like I said in the stock episode, I mean, what is the actual intrinsic value? What's the stock supposed to be? That's up for debate and quite subjective, but the actual price is what it is on the exchange any given day. And you can see that just go online and Google stock prices. You can get the actual price of something quickly and easily. Um, bonds, a little less easy, but still fairly straightforward to do. Some of the other things we're talking about here in these alternative investments, not that simple to figure out what it's actually worth or to get a value for it. And I already sort of touched on this, but alternative investments may have higher uh, transaction costs, whether it's larger bid ask spreads or simply the actual cost of transacting, uh, whether it's commissions or fees or whatever to buy or sell something could be quite higher. <clears throat> why use alternative investments? It sort of sounds like there's lots of downsides to this based on what I'm saying so far. Why use it? Well, they could um, have uncorrelated returns and risk profiles to traditional assets like stocks and bonds. So what, what does that mean? Correlated means things move together. Um, uncorrelated means things don't move together. So the the value or the price movements of a lot of these alternative investments may not move in tandem or lockstep or, or even may not even move remotely similar to the price changes of stocks or bonds. So if you're looking to build a portfolio that's diversified and you don't want everything going up and going down at the same time, maybe some forms of alternative investments could be good to fold into the mix because their prices may not move like the prices of your traditional investable stuff. All right, so let's uh, let's hit on some of the different types of alternative investments. Let's start with real estate. Um, it could be physical real estate, like if you were to buy a house to fix it and flip it. You know, you buy a house, you you put in some crown molding and granite countertops and paint the cabinets and paint the walls or whatever and sell it for more than you paid for it. That that's an investment, right? R recall the very beginning of this series: an investment is simply something you buy with the expectation that it's going to produce financial gains in one of two ways. It's going to throw off some sort of income along the way and or you're going to sell it for a price that's higher than what you paid for it. Anything, There's lots of things that can meet that criteria and all these things we're talking about today are no different. Real estate, just like I said, you buy a house to fix and flip. You, know, you buy a house for 400,000 bucks, you put 50 grand into it, you sell it for 500,000, um, you just made 50 grand. Now there's going to be closing costs and stuff, but 
that's one way. You know, you didn't necessarily get income while you were you were uh, flip um, fixing it up, but you sold it for more than what you paid for it. You can also buy. Uh, it doesn't need to be a house. You can buy land. You can buy land to sit on. Like there was this old thing back in the day: buy swamp land in Florida. It's going to go up in value. There's a lot of scams that are built around that, but there are a lot, a lot of people that did buy unused vacant land, not necessarily Florida, but wherever. And uh, as sprawl and populations grew, um, that land does become valuable. Developers eventually buy it, and you know maybe buying a vacant plot of land, sitting on it for 20 years, could end up being a good investment. Maybe it won't, but maybe it will. Um, or buying a rental property, for example, you buy a house or a condo with the intention of maybe you fix it, uh, uh, fix it up. You get a tenant in there. That tenant's going to pay you rental income every month. That's a form of investment because remember, investments produce financial gains from either income or selling it for more than what you paid for it. So rental is a decent example of um, you know alternative asset that can throw off some some ongoing income. Now, talking about transaction costs, remember I said alternative investments may have low liquidity, not you know not easy to sell, may have higher transaction costs, may be harder to determine underlying value. Think about buying a house, right? Unlike buying a stock where you click a button and within seconds you you just bought a stock within your account, you can't buy a house within seconds. Uh, I mean, it could be within days, I guess, if you're doing a cash deal. But generally, think about anytime you bought a house, it's you know it's a few weeks, a few month process. You get lawyers involved, you need realtors, you need uh, appraisers, you need inspections, you need uh, title companies, you need the town to record transfers and stuff like that. There's friction, there's time involved. It's not easy to buy and sell a house, especially compared to things like stocks and bonds. And even the costs involved with, with doing it. Think about you're a seller, right? You sell a house. If you use a realtor, you're just shaving what, whatever, 5% right off the top, gone. You got to pay a lawyer generally to, to, to um, you know, unless you are a lawyer yourself or you want to kind of wing it, you generally need a lawyer and that's going to cost some money. You got to pay recording fees at the town to make it publicly known and put it on record that, yes, okay, I sold this house to Jane Doe or John Smith or whatever. So not quick and easy to buy and sell. Higher transaction costs, definitely in buying and selling stocks, et cetera. But in theory, the price could be uncorrelated. You know, stock market went down a lot during 2022. Real estate market didn't. I mean, it started to at the end, but uh, you know, real estate market held up fairly well. Um, went down some, depending what part of the country you're in, but you know, not necessarily as much. Uh, and, and depending on the type of real estate, maybe commercial did better than residential, or vice versa. Or you know, like I said, certain certain areas of the country may have held up really well. Others not so much. So depending where you're buying, what you're buying for, it could be this uncorrelated sort of complementary asset in your portfolio to complement your traditional stocks and bonds. So that, that's physical real estate. Uh, another way to invest in, <clears throat> excuse me, in real estate is through like a, what's called a syndication. You and a bunch of others pool up money to invest. Uh, I won't give specific recommendations of, of things or, or names things, but there's like crowdsource type investments where you and a bunch of others can throw in a thousand bucks, a few thousand bucks into a big pot. You all technically are all partners in this legal entity. That legal entity goes out and buys multiple buildings to rent out, to fix and flip, whatever. So you can, that's, a, that's another way to do it, to invest in sort of physical real estate without doing it directly yourself. You can kind of pool up money with other folks to do it. Another way to get uh, pooled uh, real estate exposure is, is through something called REITs, R-E-I-T-S, or Real Estate Investment Trusts. <clears throat> There's a few different ways structures in which these come they they they're pooled investment vehicles like we talked about last week mutual funds and etfs look similar on the surface it's you and a bunch of others uh pool money by buying a fund the fund will have a ticker generally just like mutual funds and etfs do um you buy this 
the share into this REIT or this real estate investment trust, you in turn, by owning that share, you own a slice of a pot of money. That pot of money owns real estate. And you as a partial owner, you get the uh, partial economics of what that pot owns. So all the, you know, the income, the rental income that, that comes through, et cetera. So REITs, uh, like I said, they look and feel like mutual funds on the surface, but they're not. They, they are a structurally different, legally different thing. Um, let me just start summarizing here. They have their own section on their tax code that makes them makes them special. They can invest in all sorts of real estate. Could be commercial offices, could be apartments, could be warehouses, could be like medical facilities, like hospitals, could be data centers. You know, these big, big warehouses that have like servers and you know racks of servers to to store electronic data. Could be hotels. Now REITs, th there's a whole bunch out there. They generally focus on a particular property type. So there may be a REIT that invests just in commercial office spaces or just warehouses or just hotels, or there could be REITs that are mixed, uh, you know, little kind of mixed bag of everything. They could be public or private or non-traded. So a public REIT would be one that you can buy and sell just like you'd buy and sell a mutual fund or ETF. You can buy any given day. If it's an ETF type REIT, you can buy it, you know, through a stock brokerage account. If it's a mutual fund type REIT, you, you, you subscribe directly from uh, the, the company that runs it. So it could be public in that sense where it like trades on an exchange or it could be private or non-traded, uh, which would be, it, it, there is no um, ticker per se. You don't buy it directly through a brokerage account like you would buy a uh, stock or bond. You, you in effect buy it direct from, you subscribe from the company and they may only let you buy in and, and get out once a month, for example. You, you can't do it daily like you can with a public listed uh, REIT. Not necessarily uh, worse, but there's there's clearly much less liquidity if you're if you're constrained to only getting in, getting out once a month, um, versus you know daily. So just keep that in mind. the The way they make money, just like mutual funds make money, when you pull up your money, they buy a bunch of stocks, and then any dividends those stocks paid are passed through to you, the fund holders, or any any sales made for gains within the fund are passed through to you, to fund holders. REITs are the same thing. So if you have a REIT that invests in commercial office space. All the money that's pulled up buys physical buildings, uh, you know, uh, downtown office space in New York or wherever. It, could, it doesn't need to be New York, but you know, anywhere that there's commercial office space. And the way that the the REIT then makes money is it, all the rent that you know the rent that's paid from the tenants in the building. All that rent's paid to the REIT. The REIT is the owner of those buildings, and those rentals are then passed through to you, the uh, the fund holders, you know, the, the REIT owners. Now, by law, REITs need to distribute out at least 90% of their taxable income to the holders. Generally, it's more you know, closer to 100. But if they don't, then they run afoul of tax rules. So the REITs themselves, I don't think are taxed on the income. It's all passed through to you, the, the fund holders, the shareholders. I could be wrong on that. I'm not a, I'm not a REIT tax expert. But um, just suffice it to say that the vast majority, at least 90% of all the taxable income that REITs get, need to get passed through to, uh, to you, the REIT holder. Now, important distinction, remember I said REITs sort of look and feel like mutual funds and ETFs, but they're not. The, the payments you get from investing in a REIT, you know, the income that gets passed through looks like a dividend, but, but it's not a dividend in the sense that it doesn't qualify for the favorable tax treatment of being a quote-unquote qualified dividend. I don't know if I talked about this in the mutual fund episode or stock episode, but um, there's something called qualified dividends where if you own them in a regular brokerage account and you're a U.S. investor and the company that's paying the stock is basically a U.S. stock, a U.S. company, um, the, the, there's more to it than this, but the dividend will be taxed at a lower rate than your normal ordinary income tax rate. That's called the qualified dividend. Uh, REITs do not 
classify or do not uh, get the benefit of, of having their income pass through to you as uh, uh, being treated as a qualified dividend. It will be fully taxable. However, but there there is uh, a partial deduction you may get to further complicate things and uh, not to get too technical, but uh, there's a you, you can get a, a tax deduction for up to 20% of the total value of all the uh, REIT dividends passed through to you. It's, it's called the 1099A deduction. Um, so there is some potential tax benefit to REIT dividends, but it's not the same as getting dividends from normal, uh, you know, stocks within mutual funds or whatever. All right. So that's real estate. Next, this was kind of oddball one. I figured I don't quite know where to fit it in, but something called interval funds. So just like a mutual fund, remember mutual funds we talked about last week, you can buy and sell any given day, you know, at the end of the day's closing prices, but you can get in, get out any given day in that sense, very liquid. Interval funds are mutual funds on the surface and that they're pooled investment vehicles. You and a bunch of others put money in. That big pot of money goes and buys stuff. The difference is they intentionally invest in usually less liquid things that, that can't easily be sold out of. And therefore, because there's more restrictions on the fund being able to sell its stuff freely, they put restrictions on you, the fund holder, from getting out. Generally, interval funds, you can only get your money out once a quarter. There'll be pre-designated dates where you can request redemptions only once a quarter, usually. Furthermore, there'll also often be limits on how much you can get out, whether it's you in particular or you and every other shareholder in aggregate. The fund might restrict how much it'll let out in redemptions for any given quarter. And that's simply because they invest, like I said, in stuff that can't easily be sold. Maybe it's physical buildings. Like there could be interval funds that invest in real estate or some invest in private bank loans. Like they, they, uh, this pool of money will go out and buy loans and they make the money from getting paid the, uh, the interest and principal from the loan borrowers. But those loans aren't things that can easily be sold. It might take a while. So when you invest in an interval fund, you know, the upside in theory is that you can get access to investment types and asset classes you wouldn't otherwise be able to get in a normal mutual fund because normal mutual funds can't really hold sticky illiquid stuff because mutual funds need to have that daily liquidity they, they need to be able to cash you out any given day you ask for it interval funds don't have that they, they they could uh like i said you only get redeemed once a quarter typically or they can even block how much you're able to re to redeem any given quarter because <laughs> if they can't sell enough of their stuff in the portfolio to free up enough cash to meet your redemption request and they simply tell you sorry we, we can't meet you you're, you're, you're stuck you can only redeem you ask to redeem whatever twenty thousand bucks we're only going to give you back you know two thousand bucks or whatever it is uh and then you have to wait till the next quarter to try to redeem again and again they can still cap you next quarter so it can take you a long time to get out, get out of interval funds i've actually saw one firsthand where it took over two years to try to get someone out of this and even still we still still couldn't get out completely because they kept uh you know invoking this uh restriction where they only limit how much comes out every quarter so the person's still invested in this thing once out and they can't get out so it's kind of uh hasn't worked out too well um but anyway that, that's an interval fund i, I sort of throw that in there because it's sometimes real estate sometimes not but point is it's a mutual fund like thing where uh, you can only get out typically once a quarter and they will restrict how much you're able to get out each quarter Next, commodities, and this list is in no particular order, as, as you've probably figured out, but um, next are commodities. Commodities are things like metals, gold, silver, platinum, uh, grains, could be, could be corn, could be wheat, or energy, oil, natural gas, etc. There's lots of ways in which to invest in commodities. You can invest in them through funds. There's mutual funds or ETFs that invest in commodities. Some may be commodity-specific, like there could be energy 
funds, or it could be grain funds, or it could be precious metal funds, or it could be funds that invest just in gold. So that's one way to do it. You can also invest in commodities in, in physical, tangible form. You know, fairly easy to do with things like gold. You can buy little gold bars or gold coins from a from a local you know gold dealer or something. You can't easily invest in a barrel of oil. Um, it'd be cool to see someone try. I wonder if that's even possible. But uh, I, I guess in theory, if you had the storage facilities to, to in logistics to actually take in oil, then maybe you can do that. But realistically speaking, you, you can't invest in physical commodity. You know, you the average investor can't really invest in physical commodities like grain unless you have a silo to store it uh, or oil, but you can pretty easily go out and buy, you know, a, a gold, um, um, drawing a blank on it, what it's called, a gold, you know, gold, little gold bar or something by the ounce or whatever. Um, historically, a lot of precious metals at least have, have done fairly well with inflation. Like they, they've kind of correlated well to inflation. Now, not always. Now this doesn't mean go out and buy a bunch of precious metals to try to be an inflation hedge. There are other asset classes that have done really well with inflation historically, such as equities. Historically speaking, a well-diversified stock portfolio has done better during inflation than things like gold, to the contrary of what many folks say that uh, you know gold is the end-all be-all when it comes to uh, trying to hedge yourself against inflation. But nonetheless, precious metals can uh, have a, uh, a uh, positive uh, correlation to, to inflation, so they, they can, in theory, do well when there is high inflation, but not always. There's no guarantees, obviously. So that's commodities. Uh, next, hedge funds and private equity funds sort of started getting into with interval funds. Those those are kind of bridging the gap between normal mutual funds and hedge funds. So I, I won't get too off on a tangent here. I can do a whole episode about these. I don't think most of you care, so I won't. But hedge funds and private equity, well, let's start with hedge funds. Hedge funds, um, Private investments, they don't trade on an exchange. There could be infinite ways, infinite different strategies in which they invest. It's basically, it's a pooled investment vehicle, sort of like a mutual fund, where a bunch of people pool up money. That big pool then goes buy stuff and does whatever with it. But like I said, it's private. It's not public. You can't buy it on an exchange. Hedge funds are not allowed to advertise. So you're not going to see like an ad in Forbes magazine for a hedge fund like you would for you know a mutual fund or an ETF which are allowed to advertise because hedge funds aren't meant to be mom and pop uh, investment vehicles. There, there are securities rules against hedge funds promoting these things to the public at large because there are higher risks involved and they don't want the mom and pop put money in and getting burned. So um, I don't get too off on a tangent here, but hedge funds can do lots of things. The, the most common plain vanilla one is a hedge fund that will invest in regular stocks, but, in addition to being able to buy stocks to help they go up in value, they can also sell stocks to help they go down in value. That's called going short. I think I talked about it in a previous episode. So that would be called an equity long short hedge fund, where in theory, the asset manager making the picks can uh, isn't limited to doing well only when the stock market goes up. In theory, he or she can also be making money when markets go down by, by picking stocks that end up being losers, that, uh, that they, they bank on being losers. Uh, there's also something called global macro. It's a hedge fund that that takes directional bets about various parts of the macro economy, such as the direction of interest rates. Are they are they going to go up or go down? The direction of commodity prices, the direction of bond prices and stock prices. That's another form. There's hedge funds that invest in what's called distressed credit. It's uh, bonds from from beating up borrowers that are kind of on the verge of bankruptcy or defaulting. Um, they they can invest in in things like bankruptcy claims against the uh, the bankruptcy estate of Lehman Brothers 
that was a I don't know if it still is, but that was a common distressed asset owned by a lot of uh, distressed credit hedge funds. Um, the uh, there's lots of different ways to structure a hedge fund, but generally the ability to get money out is restricted. Often restriction um, redemptions are only allowed once a quarter. Some cases even worse. There may be like a one year initial lockup where you can't get money out at all in the first year or two, and then after that, it's only once a quarter or once every six months or something. And even then, kind of similar to an interval fund, is um, you can only get out up to a certain amount every quarter or every six months. You know, they they can put a restriction on how much they'll let you or other shareholders get out any given time. Uh, so that's that's hedge funds historically pretty high fees. You may have heard something called two and twenty. The the common fee structure was the hedge fund manager would take two percent of all your assets every year as a management fee, and twenty percent of any gains they made uh, within the fund. That's that's called two and twenty. Now that fee is getting pressured. When I, when I left the industry a few years ago, uh, it, it it was still two and twenty largely, but a lot of managers dropped it to like one and a half and fifteen. Some even went to one and ten, and, and all sorts of combinations in between. Some managers that have good track records and in, in a lot of uh, cachet charge more. They'll, they'll charge like two and thirty or three and thirty or something ridiculous. But for the most part, the the industry as a whole, the, the fees have been getting pressured such that they've been dropping from the the typical two and twenty. Uh, I, I don't expect that trend would have changed over the last few years since since I left the business in twenty nineteen. And private equity funds, uh, kind of similar to hedge funds, and that same thing. They're private; they're not able to be invest uh, promoted to retail investors or advertised retail investors. You put money in, you can't get it out very easily. There's going to be restrictions around it. But the big difference is. Um, the, the way these things work, you don't put money in, you, you commit money initially, but that's not necessarily, you don't have to actually put the money in then you commit money. And what happens is the fund manager decides, okay, over the next few years, uh, it finds an investment it wants to buy. It'll then call up the investors that committed money and say, okay, send me in, you know, whatever, 1 million of the 5 million commitment that you made. They'll, they'll then go and invest it. It's so over a period of a few years, these private equity fund managers will find investments. They'll call commitments from their investors, make the investments. And then there's a there's a life, usually it's seven, maybe 10 years, give or take, where they buy these investments, hope they do well, they restructure them, in, increase or improve management, you know, rejigger their operations or uh, uh, logistics or whatever. And then eventually hope to sell these companies off that they bought and sell them for a profit. And when they they, they sell off and monetize these companies, they then distribute back the proceeds to you, the investor. So in theory, uh, this private equity manager makes good investments, it buys stuff low, fixes the companies up over a few years, sells them off at higher levels, cashes you out, you make money on the, you know, uh, you make more than what you put in, everybody's happy. They also have relatively high fees, kind of similar to the two and 20 hedge fund model. There's an ongoing management fee, plus there's a percent of profit fee that they take. Um, I'll leave that there. Again, I can do a whole episode on this, but uh again why you may be thinking well this doesn't sound like a good deal i can't get my money out other other than very limited times or when i do it there's going to be um a restriction on how much i can get out plus it has high fees uh yes those are all downsides but in theory if the managers do well they, they can get you good returns that are not correlated to the broader stock and bond markets now that's in theory in reality a lot of these hedge funds and uh, especially hedge funds the returns that they produce aren't anything fantastic, especially for the fees they charge. And the returns are actually quite correlated to the broader market. So it's like, what's the point in investing in these? Not to say there's not diamonds in the rough out there, but as a whole, the hedge fund industry, uh, 
I don't think is uh, doing a great job of uh, really proving its value. Anyway, uh, next, moving on, <clears throat> digital assets like crypto. Oh, man, what can I say about this? Um, I did an episode on the in my Facebook live group. I did an episode on this. I had a special guest a while ago. I'll see if I can find the link to that. Uh, these, these are interesting. I'm sure you all have a strong opinion about them. Now, they're, they're sort of hard to conceptualize. It's like, like Bitcoin, for example. And again, this is not a recommendation to buy or sell Bitcoin or, or not buy or sell it. Um, what exactly is it? It's nothing more than this thing that floats out there in the ether and has value only because market participants say it has value. What drives its price any given day? It's nothing more than supply and demand. In theory, there should be some intrinsic fundamental underliers behind it, but there's really not. It's just, I don't know, if, if you think it's going to be 30 bucks a coin, I think it's going to be 25, you know, we meet in the middle and pay 27 and a half or something like that. So I have a hard time figuring out what, what the value of anything crypto, any digital asset really is. I'm not saying it can't go up in value. I wouldn't be surprised, honestly, if not just Bitcoin, but other forms of, of various digital things do indeed go up a lot in value over time. Not because there's any sort of fundamental underpinnings, underpinnings to it, just simply because the market wants them to go up. I also wouldn't be surprised if, if a lot of the value of these things tank and get to zero or close to it or anything in between. So I'm not, I'm not ruling them out. I'm saying they are super, super speculative. I'm saying there's no fundamentals belying them. Uh, I'm saying don't ever put in more than you're you're willing and able to potentially lose completely. View this as a pure lottery ticket bet almost. Um, with that framing in mind, if you want to invest in some crypto, great. But I wouldn't build this as the foundation of anyone's investment strategy. So it, as far as correlation, uh, historically, at least like Bitcoin, it hasn't been very uncorrelated. There's a lot of double negatives. It has been fairly correlated with the broader stock market uh, and, and risky assets in general. Like as the stock market has gone up, crypto went up and vice versa. When the market sort of crashed last year, uh, crypto crashed as well. So uh, anyway, um, I'm trying to think what else to say about crypto. Could be very uncorrelated, but historically has been more correlated than, than uh, people kind of think it should be or expected it to be very different in how you buy and sell it uh in that again it's not a tangible thing it only exists kind of in the ether you do need a a wallet or an account there's there's online digital banks basically you open accounts with now i, I don't want to get into this because i'm sure you've read the news about uh i'm drawing a blank sam bankman fried what, what was the name of his uh was a coin bait i don't know what it was one, one of his exchanges you know ended up being complete fraud that's not saying all crypto is fraud, but there's definitely, it's the wild west out there. There's there's uh, lots of nefarious actors and there's also some good actors. How do you know which ones are good ones? I don't know. Um, so whether or not you, you dabble in crypto is up to you, but uh, just keep in mind, like I said, that um, it is highly speculative. View it like a lottery ticket. Don't put in more than you can potentially lose. In theory, you might be able to make a lot of money or you can lose most or all your money. But uh, I felt it was worth at least bringing it up in this thing. Not that I would necessarily recommend it to people, but um, it, it, it's worth being aware of because it, it's here. We're all aware of it. So um, know that it's there. And two more things kind of wrapping up. As you can tell, this, this episode is kind of clunky. I'm just, this is like a mixed bag of all sorts of other investments I'm kind of throwing in here. Next week's, invest, next week's uh, uh, episode should be more cohesive and put together because that's going to tie things like i said uh and, and make it a kind of portfolio management overview capstone type thing all right anyway so the last two i want to talk about cash value life insurance um check out episode 28 i did it was all about a larp life 
LIRP, life insurance retirement plan. That's one type of way in which a cash value life insurance policy could be used as an investment-like tool. Now, notice I said investment-like. It's not an investment in and of itself. Anyone who ever tells you it's an investment or tries to sell it as an investment, uh, run, you know, don't, don't walk, run away from them because they're misrepresenting it. It's first and foremost life insurance. But some life insurance, permanent life insurance, does have an investment-like component in that it can build cash value. That cash value can be used for things where you can take loans against it is the, the most typical way to, to access it. Or you can actually terminate, suspend, um, uh, surrender, take some of the summer, all the money out and, and go. So there is uh, a cash value investment-like feature to it that can be non-correlated to the broader financial markets. Um, something to consider. So definitely, I'll, I'll, I'll leave that there, but definitely check out episode 28 where I talk much more about cash value life insurance, specifically the life insurance retirement plan gist. Also check out retirementplanningeducation.com. I have more on there. Um, no, I'm sorry, not there. The IUL experiment.com. It's, it's the website I set up to, to my experiment. I'll call it where I bought an index universal life insurance policy or an IUL. Uh, I'll have a link in the notes for that. It's the IUL experiment.com. You can learn more about cash value life insurance, specifically IUL uh, insurance policies and um, how they could potentially be used as an investment like uh, thing. Again, it's not actually an investment, it's investment like. Keep that in mind. And finally, annuities. Um, I did a three-part podcast series on annuities, episodes 20, 21, 22. Go back and check those out. I went through annuities in, in, in good detail, great detail. That'll uh, help make a lot more sense of it, but I'll just recap it briefly here. So annuities are insurance contracts uh, between you and an insurer. They can do lots of things and take lots of different forms. They can be lifetime income payments. They can be cash-like vehicles. Like I talked about MIGAs or multi-year guaranteed annuities, which are functionally kind of like bank CDs, but technically annuities. Um, they can be investment-like uh, accounts. They can be part life insurance as well. They can be lots of things. They can have high fees. They can have no fees. They can be super simple. They can be super complicated. Uh, there's a lot of, lot of things to consider with annuities. No two annuities are, are the same. But you, you can use them as investment-like things. Some of them are built and made to be investment-like components where uh, you put money in and you let it sit there and it'll grow by some amount, maybe a fixed interest rate, maybe a variable interest rate that's based on some underlying investments, maybe what's called an indexed rate where you kind of get uh, something in between sort of, let's call it that. And then maybe uh, you, you cash it out down the road. Maybe you don't, maybe you turn it into lifetime payments. So th there, there can be investment-like components to some annuities and the, the returns, the value of that annuity can move, can be uncorrelated to traditional asset classes like stocks or bonds. So another thing to consider in this uh, complicated mix of other investments above and beyond just stocks, bonds, mutual funds, and ETFs. Alrighty, I think I will stop there. Well, not, I think I know. Uh, I will stop there. I'm sure I confused you all. Th this was a tough one. There, there, each one of these things could arguably be its own episode, but I didn't want to get that level of detail. I thought I'd just kind of scratch the surface, do high level on each of these, and just generically call them all alternative investments, just, just to make you aware of different things out there. There's, it's, it's much more than just stocks and bonds in the investment universe, which makes it hard. If you're not well-versed in all this stuff, I get it. It's like, where do I even start? And that's what uh, next week's episode, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hope to try to better crack, uh, giving you a framework to how to start considering this stuff and, and you know, uh, 
what to think about when, when putting together a plan for yourself, what to invest in, whatnot. Okay, that's it. Uh, if you like this, as always, please definitely um, be greatly appreciated if you were to give a, a little like, a thumbs up, a, a review in whatever podcast platning, podcast listening platform you use to access this show. And if you haven't already, definitely check out retirementplanningeducation.com where you can find this podcast as well as my YouTube channel, link to the Facebook group, a whole bunch of uh, succulent and delicious free handouts. Um, and I have a blog I just started there. So once a month, there'll be little articles there about various different retirement planning education related stuff. All right, that's it. I need something to drink. My throat is burnt. And I will uh, see you next week for the, the sixth and final installment of the Intro to Investing series. All righty, take care. The information discussed in this podcast is only general explanations and education. It is not specific tax, legal, or investment advice. Before considering acting on anything you heard here, first consult with your tax, legal, or investment advisor. Thank you. Thank you.